All right, guys, you're very welcome along to episode 42. This is Shane, and this is Heartlines. Now, on the line, I have a poet, a lyricist. He's two times Ulster Slam poetry champion. He's also the host of his own podcast called the Dunkern Podcast. His name is Colin Hazard. How are you doing, Colin? Evening, Shane. How are you? Evening. Not too bad. Not too bad. Now, Colin, right, yeah, as we say up here, <laughs> about you, yeah, you got to you got to teach me some 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 northern uh, sayings because give us some give us some uh, slang words you you'd say on a daily basis. Uh, up your way uh, well obviously you probably know right so it is and so it was at the end of sentences that's a tricky one because because I, I use them i don't even notice them anymore mm. funnily enough my wife is actually finnish and to talk to her you wouldn't know that she was finished because she sounds not like me now but she uses a lot of our expressions she says yeah. uh, she says a lock and ter- like in terms of a quantity pound yeah. lock of land and she, she says so it is and she talks about the crack and all that kind of stuff so has she been living long um up the north or she has been here for eight years now Okay. But her her sister lives here as well. Her older sister, who's also married to a guy called Colin, they sound very much like one of us now. Have you went over to Finland at all? Have you checked it out? Oh yeah, definitely many times. We got married in Finland uh, about three years ago in July, and it's just a beautiful country. It's it's a country that I never really had any kind of preconceptions of. I didn't because mm. we don't really see it on, mm. on your kind of our TV or anything. Whenever my my parents flew in for the wedding, it was about half past midnight when the plane landed, and I had gone to meet them. And when they arrived in the airport, it was daylight. I'm kind of like what? <laughs> Half twelve, one o'clock in the morning, and it's the sun's out. It's very, it's very like disconcerting. Was that in the summer? That was July. Yeah, was yeah, yeah, yeah. They have midnight golf. Do you play golf at all, Colin? I don't because I actually worked for a golf company up until last year for about four years. And oh, when right. I did the interview for them, they asked me, do you play golf? And of course I was like, oh, yes, yes. I'm never <laughs> off the course. And I, ha- I hadn't touched a golf club in about 15 years. Well, even like all those things you mentioned in that introduction to me. Yeah. Which is very polite, by the way, the poet, the lyricist, and all yeah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like yeah. if I decided I was going to take up golf again, my wife would go mental. <laughs> or, or bucked aft there's an expression for you for okay yeah. and I can tell you for sure if I was going on a weekend away to play golf the Finnish people would not be the happiest people on earth definitely wouldn't be <laughs> yeah so you're from Banbridge now what, what can you tell me about Banbridge that uh, you should know about Banbridge Banbridge is probably most famous because it's in that song Star of the County Down okay Banbridge Town and the County Down one morning last July hey <laughs> uh, that's kind of our claim to fame mm. um, but it was Banbridge was just a it's a town people don't know it, it's about twenty five miles southwest of Belfast yeah and it was it was such a great place to grow up and I mean obviously I'm biased because I'm from there but I just lo- I love the town and I think it is the best town in the north the reason I love it probably the people like like anywhere it's home mm. like even the, the best friends that I have to this day are still people that I went to school with and you know the way the way of the world now is WhatsApp groups yeah. everyone's in a WhatsApp group with with people and I'm in no exception. I'm in a WhatsApp group with my friends from Banbridge. And there's one of those people is from, I knew from nursery school, some from primary school, mostly from secondary school. But those are still the still guys that I would still hang out with and go out for pints with when we're, uh, yeah, I've really missed going back there. I mean, I do live in Belfast now because that's kind of where I have to be for my job and for the kind of creative scene. But Banbridge will always be home. Now, Banbridge, um, I know Banbridge for, well, in my research, I found out that, um, the father of W.B. Yates, John Butler Yates, is actually from Banbridge. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Also, there's this thing called the Bus- Busker Fest. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, Busk Fest, yeah. Busk Fest, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was it was created in 2004. Can you tell me, Anne, about that? I can, and I can because I have been a judge in Busk Fest for the past number of years. So, yeah, it's just it's a busking competition in Banbridge. So one Saturday every summer, usually in June time. Mm. The streets are just lined with different buskers and whether that's like a solo act just playing the guitar or maybe some bands come and it's all done unplugged and if you get a good day for it it's it just brings the whole town alive people can walk up and down the street listen to people playing music and then in the, the main park in banbridge in solitude park in the evening time there's an award ceremony so you get awarded for you know, the best performance spirit of busk fest and best group and it's you've got, got a big stage and usually they have kind of more popular acts who come and play like we had uh, Duke Special I think played one year but the Undertones came one year uh, and they put on a great show we had Aslan that was the year that they banned drinking at it and that's that's a different story that didn't go down well in the town we'll not talk about that and uh, but yeah it's, it's such a great day for, for, for Banbridge and the reason that I love it as well is because whenever I'm a, I'm a judge for it I get to go and get a free lunch as well that's nice yeah it's always yeah, nice to get a free lunch full three course spread oh can't it. <laughs> makes it all worthwhile is, is Banbridge big place because i've been i like i've been to well i was in fermanagh one time when i was uh, in like my secondary school and we went up to some sort of 
I think it was some sort of adventure center. I don't know what it was called, though. It was literally over the border between Cavan and Fermanagh. I forget what it was called. Well, like a water sports kind of place? Like yeah, water sports, banana boats, abseiling, uh, wall climbing, all sorts of just kind of, you know, fun stuff. I forget what it's called, though. Uh, I'm not sure what that would be called. There's, uh, I actually did a similar thing in Donegal for my stag do in 2018. And would you believe until 2018, I had never been to Donegal. Well, I, I I seen that in the in one of your in one of your poems, and I I actually loved I loved that poem. I really that's one of my favorites. I'm not Irish, but I love that poem. I just um it just it just resonates with me. You know, I'm not Irish, but I've never been Donegal. Yeah, it's just that, um, poem's, that poem's based on based on truth. And the first line about never having been to Donegal it was absolutely true. But since I have gone to Donegal, I've really fallen in love with the place, and I've been back numerous times since yeah. then for various creative things and holidays and all the rest of it. And I can't believe I never went there before. Like mm. growing up. I had, I had such a great childhood where I was able to travel with my parents you know, on holidays through Europe and to America and yeah. to the Caribbean and places yeah. like that. But then we never went you know, to the west of Ireland to <laughs> or anywhere like that. So. I would have spent like many, many childhood kind of summers over in the west of Ireland. And I would have probably traveled around Ireland, the south of Ireland more than the north. Like I've never really, I've been to Belfast, you know, as a tourist, but never really explored the north. I've never been to, I've never been to Giants Causeway. I've never been to the Rope Bridge. I know all of these places are getting very popular because of Game of Thrones, you know, like Dunluce Castle and all this kind of thing. But I've never actually been to these places. And I've have you have you watched Game of Thrones? Never. No. No, me neither. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like there we are. We're one of the same. Yeah, I don't know. Just um I've never really got into kind of uh kind of that fantasy. I know it's but ba- I think it like I think it's sort of based on like European history in a sense. Mm. I believe in Banbridge, there's another location that was used uh for Game of Thrones. There is, and I can't tell you any more about that because mm. I don't know. But I have heard that. Yeah, and actually, I know. I know some people that, that have worked on Game of Thrones. Mm. People in the costume department and people who've done extra work. Been great to have that focus on, yeah. and not just Banbridge, but within Northern Ireland to have this massive, huge global TV show Definitely. connected to to the country. So maybe someday I will get around to watching it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I will. I think I'm. I'm a bit of a. Uh, I'm a bit of a, a laggard when it comes to certain things. Like it takes me a long time to get into any series. But once it could be like five years later, and I'm into it. But at the moment. I'm not into it. Years ago, I was in Dubrovnik with my girlfriend or wife now. Yeah. We actually walked past because Dubrovnik is another location where they film Game of Thrones. And we actually walked past the throne, you know, the, the fancy chair. And there was an opportunity to get my photograph taken. And I say, I'd never seen the show with no interest in it. And I was like, I'm not bothered. I don't want that photograph. And now I don't want to watch the show in case I get really into it. And going, I had the chance to sit in the throne <laughs> to get my <laughs> photograph taken and I didn't take it. That's beside the point. Yeah. Now, you said that you like, um, you enjoyed growing up in Banbridge. How did you become, how did you get into becoming like a poet or, or into, into writing? Were you always into, into writing growing up or like, was that, was that something you're, uh, you're interested in? Yeah, I was always very good. He said modestly at kind of English, at creative writing. Okay. Picking up new stories, think mm. writing essays and so on. But how I got into poetry, the long story short is it started with music. Okay. And I looked this up quite recently actually, because I was, I was kind of thinking about how I got started and, it was May 1997, I think it was. B- the BBC had broadcast a performance of Oasis, MTV Unplugged. I used to sit with my tennis racket and pretend that I was Noel Gallagher. Yeah, jamming away. Along with the songs. Yeah. And eventually I said to my dad, can I get a guitar? I got a guitar. I'm an only child as well. So, of course, I adhere to all those stereotypes being spoiled and attention-seeking and introverted and all that. Yeah. So of course I got th- I got this guitar and I learned that my first chord was an A and my second chord was an A minor and that was it I was away I was writing songs writing lyrics and that's what I wanted to be I wanted to be a musician whether that was in a band or as a singer songwriter I didn't know but I just loved playing guitar and writing lyrics writing songs I wasn't particularly good at playing the guitar I was much better at writing lyrics and thinking of kind of concepts or ideas for songs mm. I was around I was must have been about fifteen then and then when I was seventeen I was studying A level English. And it wasn't just the fact that I was interested in kind of literature and writing, et cetera, but I had a really passionate teacher at the time in Bambridge Academy, the school I was at, who really brought these texts to life. These poets like uh, Robert Frost and John Keats and playwrights like Tennessee Williams and Shakespeare. And I just got really enamored with writing and literature. And, and I started writing poems. And I wrote my first poem in that summer of 1999 when I 
broke up. So I started going out with and then I broke up with my first girlfriend and it was all woe was me, very dramatic. For some reason, I, I, I wrote a poem about it. I just turned to poetry to express myself. But going back to like the only child thing and the intention, attention seeking, I actually showed the poem to the teacher to say, hey, look what I've done. I've written a poem. And I thought he would just kind of pat me on the head. Well done. I'm glad you're you know, taking on board some of these ideas. But he actually took the poem away and marked it and like did a critique on it. And I can't remember exactly what he said, but he didn't say it was awful. Well, yeah, maybe I'm all right at this. So fast forward now, um, I didn't really tell anybody else that I was writing songs or poems. And about 10 years later, by the time I'd moved to Belfast, I was living near Queen's University in the city centre. And through my friend, my friend's uncle was a poet. I didn't know this, but um, I, I happened to tell one of my closest friends that I had been writing poems. And he said, oh, my, my uncle is one of the poets in the Belfast poetry scene. And I didn't even know Belfast had a poetry scene. So he got me in touch with his uncle and I went with his uncle to one of the, the local nights. And it was actually only two streets away from where I lived near Queens in a place called Bookfinders Cafe, which is now sadly gone. I think it closed down about two years ago, but it was such a real kind of old fashioned, romantic, mystical place where when you went in the door, it was just a bookshop. It was a bookshop and cafe and went in, it was books just piled floor to ceiling and it was really dusty and just, but I'm not describing it well, but it was a really exciting place to be in. And then once you went through this kind of archway into the back, that was the cafe and it was an L-shaped room with the stage, if you can call it that, in the, at the corner of the L. It was just a table and you just stood behind the table and said your poems. I don't even think there was a microphone and people just turned up. And of course, this was before social media. So you're just kind of there with your bottle of wine or your beers or whatever. And you're having a drink and you're meeting people and you're listening to voices and it's funny and it's exciting and it's passionate and it's romantic. And I just loved it. And I, I didn't know until that point when I went to that first night in Bookfinders that poetry could be like that. And that was me. I was taken with it. I was taken with the poets and with the poems. And then that totally changed my writing experience and how, how I was approaching poetry because I thought it had to be this certain way, probably that more traditional style like Robert Frost or like Shakespeare, you know, kind mm. of maybe old fashioned. Not that I'm not saying that negatively, but that's kind of what it had to be like. And this totally made it contemporary and brought it into the real world for me. And I, I mean, I still to this day, I still love, love Robert Frost. And I still have the book that I got in A-Level English. So I still read it now and again, refresh my memory and go back to the, the start, as it were. When I was in Bookfinders and going to these kind of performance poetry events, these slam events, really made it contemporary. And, and I say, just brought the poems to life. And that for me was a real turning point. And then I started try, to write slam poetry. And I had no, at that time, I had no idea of where it was going to end up I just wrote because I loved doing it and I wasn't thinking about getting published I wasn't thinking about going on tour or performing any on any big stages anywhere I just wanted to write because you you mentioned there you mentioned that I was writing poems but wasn't telling people would you say that's a kind of perception in Ireland in general that people don't talk about their, their, their poetry unless they are you know a writer per se well, even going back to the music, when mm. I was growing up in Banbridge, I didn't know anyone else that played music. And I certainly didn't know anyone else that was writing poems or at least admitting to writing poems. And that was not something and you, you wouldn't go down to the pub on a Saturday afternoon to watch the football and say, oh, by the way, lads, I've been writing a few poems at home because it, it's just no. it would be embarrassing. I have a poem called Commercial Break, which is a, a bit like it's almost like advertising poetry, you know, like an old kind of American infomercial. Yeah. Hey, you need to try poetry. And it, there's a line in it. Um, if you want to have people think you're a weirdo or gay or both. Then you need to try poetry, and that—that that, I mean, it was my own kind of, I guess, my own mentality of I didn't want to tell people, I didn't want to be embarrassed, I didn't want to put myself out there. I saw it that night in Bookfinders, and then other poetry nights within Belfast, and I realised mm. there's actually a load of people like me who are writing yeah. and who are, who are brave enough to share their work and to stand on a stage and kind of yeah. expose themselves through poetry. So you found your tribe essentially. Oh, I did definitely. definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like going back to when I was talking about my friends from Banbridge. You know, they—I don't want to criticise them because I'm not been critical of them but they were very like what are you doing that for like you're writing poems and they i think to this day they still can't really comprehend it but they come to the gigs and they enjoy them and they always say oh you're doing really well we're really pleased to see how well mm. you're doing and all that and that that means a lot to me it probably means more to me getting respect from them than you know getting literary awards and so on or you know winning competitions and, and that because it's that's kind of like my audience come back to your original point about writing poems for the common man because I'm always aware that whenever I'm on stage the people that I'm talking to are on a night out and they want to enjoy themselves and that doesn't mean it has to be a laugh a minute far from it you can talk about serious issues do serious poems on on serious social political topics whatever mm. it is but at least make it interesting make it entertaining mm. and that's what I always tried to do whether I was talking about serious subject matter or not it was always about putting on a show 
Sure. And did I did I read somewhere that you've done a bit of comedy in your time? I have. Yeah. I I I done comedy for a couple of years uh, in Edinburgh. I think when you, once you start doing comedy or performance in any way, it never leaves you. You, you always have that itch. But as you say, to 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 be a professional poet, writer, comedian, you know how many people are at that level making enough money to to. To not not to survive to to thrive you know what I mean yeah well the old saying goes rhyme doesn't pay <laughs> exactly and, yeah and, but there has been because of the kind of the performance poetry that I do yeah I have I've been part of kind of some comedy nights and it's a very different audience because on a poetry night if maybe your poem doesn't land so well yeah. people will still be polite and applaud you whereas on a comedy night you're expecting laughs and you don't get the laughs it's a very lonely stage <laughs> no so it I is try, I, I try and avoid those comedy nights now it depends on the night because some nights because my time in Edinburgh I was going to like nights where it was like music comedy and poetry so it's all mm. it's an open field where if you go to a comedy club and have poetry and comedy unless it's a, a night that's planned out like that yeah as you say comedy nights can be a bit roxious you know so poetry might fit that mold it, or depending on the style of poetry yeah for sure yeah but you have I mean I think in any creative form but I can speak personally from poetry you have to have a bit of a thick skin and you have yeah. to deal with a lot of rejection maybe mainly from publishers saying no wait we don't want to publish your work uh, and that's something that I had to learn the hard way about I think any poet does that you have to get used to the, that uh, those doors being closed but then not let it get you down and you have to keep believing in what you're doing and trying yeah. to get better yeah most important things that I've learned over the years is, is to develop that thick skin I used to write poetry but I think my I think the way I, I write poetry be like limericks you know kind of rhyming schemes because it it just flows better whereas some there's all different styles of poetry you know, you know them. I've I've looked up your poetry. You do like poetry lessons and poetry workshops and stuff like that. I have been. And the, the trick is to keep one step ahead or one week ahead of your workshop participants. And if I'm going to talk about similes and metaphors, I'm on online researching similes and metaphors, then explaining them. <laughs> you know, but I'm, and I'm only kind of partly joking there because there's some, there are certain things that I do in these lessons where I know how to do them. I've been doing them so long. I don't really even think about them anymore. Yeah. You know, there's just these techniques or... Mm things about form and about where to gather inspiration from and to then go and explain your process to someone is quite difficult you have to kind of step back and analyze what you do and how you do it to go and explain it so sometimes i do have to go to youtube and look at a tutorial on how other people explain things and then i have to go and explain how i do it so uh but it's been great obviously over the past year when i haven't been able to do my quote-unquote proper job etc and i've been doing these online workshops more so it's been great to think about that from a kind of taking that step back and, and analyzing and getting better as a writer myself because of that yeah definitely at the start i talked about slam poetry and i'm talking i'm talking to you who know slam poetry but people who are listening explain what slam poetry is slam is is performance poetry mm. and that means unsurprisingly performing your poetry so it can include elements of theater of comedy of audience participation as well as those more kind of traditional techniques of poetry such as the rhyme and the rhythm and the meter etc and then a slam a poetry slam is a competition which is usually three rounds where each poet gets three minutes per round to perform their work and the judges then score the poet on their content of their poem and on their performance and sometimes the audience reaction is also considered as part of that scoring Uh, and like for example you would get marked down in your performance if you were using a page so there's extra points available if you can memorize your work and then perform it, which is another skill. And that's something that I worked hard on, especially in those early years to, to learn my work. Uh, but there's something really inspiring about those nights. Like there's the energy in the room on the big stage and the microphone and the judges. And the, and, the, and I suppose not to trivialize it, but it, I suppose it's a bit like X Factor. You go on stage, you do your bit and you've got the judges then judging you. And whether you get through the next round is up to them. That's maybe in, in kind of terms that people would understand. But like in in... 2010 I was Ulster Slam champion because I won the Belfast heat to then go and represent Ulster at the All-Ireland final the All-Ireland final didn't go so well for me but we'll move on from that Um, but I was really lucky in those kind of from around 2010 to 2013 I won pretty much every spoken word slam in the north that was Belfast Book Festival Culture Night Belly Laughs Comedy Festival Um, there was other things other competitions I competed in and so on but it was it's great and a great buzz but I think that's a bit of a young man's game. It takes a lot of energy to rehearse. And that was, it's great when you win. When the, when the judges read out your name as the winner, there's no feeling like it. It's supposed to like anything, like to, to be the first place is great. But when you don't win, it's, a, it's, it's not nice. And then I had, I actually got it from the other side. I was one of the judges. 
I think this was about 2015, I was a judge at the Belfast Book Festival Poetry Slam. And most of the poets on stage that night were people that I was friendly with, people I knew, and, and I know how hard they all worked on their poems. And it was an awful situation to be in, to be judging their work, and to say that that poet's better than that poet, and that poem's better than that poem. And it just, I didn't like that experience. And I don't think that we should be competing against each other. And, and yes, I get that it's an exciting night. And I, I mean, I've, I've been talking about it and I'm remembering those nights and how excited and, and, and pleased I was and proud of myself that I was to win those awards. But I don't know if I would go and do slams again. There was a, there was a slam that I did. It was, at the, it, was at the, it was in the Crescent Arts Centre in Belfast. And it must have been the Belfast Book Festival. Or maybe it was the All-Ireland Qualifier. Mm. Anyway, whatever it was, I was, it was a massive, massive night, packed room. But the Crescent has this glass door, the main door is the glass and you can see out into the street and it was always bring your own booze and I remember standing waiting for my name to be called to go on stage and I could see through this glass and I could see my friends some of the Banbridge people arriving to, to come and support me and they yeah. had a, the first guy had a box or a crate of beer over his shoulder the next guy had a liter bottle of vodka in his hand and I was going when it's bring your own booze it's it's meant to be like a glass of you know a bottle yeah, of wine yeah. Yeah, share, share, share a few glasses. Exactly. Not, yeah, yeah. Not a liter bottle of vodka <laughs> and, and 24 tins of beer. So, needless to say, these guys landed in and they'd been in the pub already and things escalated. So, and there was a bit of, bit of trouble with security. They were telling them to keep the noise down and so on and drinks were getting spilled. And then my name was called to go on stage. So, I started my poem and I still to this day remember, I still remember the huge room and everyone kind of in a half circle looking at me. And at the back of the room, I could see my friends just getting lifted by the backs of their shirts or the backs of their coats and getting thrown out of the crescent. And that put me off what I was doing because I'm looking at this and yeah. I could see them going, no, we're with him, pointing, pointing at me, going, we're with him, we're with him. And I'm going, no, they're not. They're not just. Uh, so, of course, because of that, that whole drama, I forgot what I was meant to be doing and I forgot the poem and it was kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, everybody, I got to go. Now, to be fair to them, they did ring the next day and apologize for their behavior and so on. Yeah, they actually they actually had to get more security then for the next event that they, <laughs> they, they held in the Crescent because of that. Is slam poetry a new concept for poetry? Not overly, I think. Oh, this has gone into my memory banks now. I know what started really in Chicago in the 19, early 1980s. And okay. I think the guy, I think the guy was called Mark... Kelly was something like that. He wanted to make this break from this traditional old-fashioned kind of poetry where people are standing with their books and their meter and their rhyme and all that. Yeah, and yeah. To bring it, bring, you know, make it contemporary to bring it back to the people. Yeah, yeah. And since then, it's really grown. And you know, as I mentioned, it's it brings in elements of comedy and theatre and even mm. rap and music and so on. And yeah. it's really more more high octane than that. It's kind of like maybe the first entry point for a lot of people that they don't think they like poetry, but if they happen to stumble upon a. a, a performance poetry event or a slam event at a festival they go actually this is this is great this is really refreshing and new and yeah i mean for me it was really new whenever i discovered it in like 2008 2009 but now it's i mean now there's massive national and global european competitions as well um I, like i have friends like friends of mine who win who have won the all ireland have gone on to represent ireland at the european slams i have people who've gone to england to perform to represent northern ireland and yet yeah, I, mean, I think it's really growing and and even with the advent of social media for people, performance poets to get their stuff on YouTube or whatever yeah. social media they happen to be on, it, it's, it becomes a lot more accessible. H has poetry turned the corner? Is it, is it more of a, like a rock star moment if you're a sla if you do slam poetry versus just like you know sheet notes kind of poetry? That's a good question. I think performance poets are probably better known. They you know, they're the ones who get booked for the festivals because mm. they know how to kind of work a crowd. Yeah, they're, they're used to the stage and all that kind of stuff. So I mean. There's people like John Cooper Clark, who's been around for years, who's been mm. there and done that right from the, the 1970s, I think he started out. To even more contemporary people like um, Kay Tempest and Scroobius Pip and Lem Cisse, of course, as well, he's been around for a long time. And I know a lot of people who would only look at those guys, look at the performance poets, and they wouldn't be interested in writing a book because it has that immediate accessibility. You can listen to listen to a poem and just you know, enjoy the words, enjoy the performance. Uh, so I don't know if poets are the rock stars. Uh, I would love them to be. Uh, but uh, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Maybe rap stars is the is the next thing. I see you. Uh, you you've, you've toured with John Cooper Clark. What was that like? 
you've gigged with him. You, you've done a few appearances with him. Yeah. Um, the first time I got to support him was at the, the Belfast International Arts Festival. And they had set up this huge marquee tent on the grounds of Queen's University. And I remember being really, really nervous that night. I was actually, I went down early just to kind of get in and get settled. And like John Cooper Clark, he was a hero of mine. He's, I've seen him on TV and listened to his, his records and so on. And, and to have the chance to support him was like a dream come true. So I went down early and there was literally only the stage manager and the sound man and me at the venue. So the stage manager was kind of showing me around and, and this is where this is and this is where that is and all this. And then she brought me backstage to see the dressing rooms. And uh, there was two two porta cabins and she says, oh, this one on the right here, that's John Cooper Clark's and this one on the left is, is yours. So she said, let me show you John Cooper Clark's dressing room. So she opened the door and there was all the, there was two tables just filled with food, sandwiches and canapes and yeah. crisps and the whole lot. Yeah. drinks and everything and there was a fridge stocked with beer and there was all these kind of sofas and nice cushions and there's candles i was thinking wow this is this is big time now this is, <laughs> this is great I, I can't wait to see my dressing room and then she brought me to the other porta cabin and she opened the door and there was one plastic seat one one kind of plasticky table there was a fridge with nothing in it not only that it wasn't even plugged in and that was a real come down thinking right okay this is me this is the big time collie here sitting on your own in this plastic seat with no candles, nothing comfortable, no drinks, nothing. But then so I got I got settled down. I was reading over my poems, getting ready for the gig. And then I heard this kind of commotion outside and I realized that John Cooper Clark and his whole entourage had turned up. So I plucked up the courage then to go next door to say hello and kind of introduce myself. I went around to the port of Cobb and I knocked the door and there was no answer. And then I knocked a bit louder and then the door opened and it was a guy called Johnny Green, who is John Cooper Clark's manager. And he used to be the manager for The Clash. Yeah. And, and he was he's a really big guy really broad guy and he's got the, the hair mm. and all this and he was actually on the phone at the time and he looked at me with disdain like what do you want <laughs> obviously disturbing his phone call and i was like hi i'm colin i'm uh, i'm the support act yeah. i just just stood back and opened the door so i walked in and now i'm standing on my own in this room mm. and there's people talking on the sofas john cooper clark's beside the sandwiches and this um, johnny johnny green is on his phone so i decided i would have to go and speak to john cooper clark this is what i'm here for and i can feel my heart pounding going there he is this is the guy i've seen on tv and i've listened to so i started walking over towards him and i'm thinking what am i going to say like, what's my opening line going to be what am i going to say to this guy and he's really intimidating himself because he's you know he's got the big hair and he's mm. got the sunglasses and you know, this famous face and as i got to him he turned around and looked at me and I went, no word of a lie. I said to him, are these sandwiches free? And he went, yeah, of course they are. Okay, thank you. And I started getting sandwiches. And then I was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I said to him, look, um, by the way, I'm I'm Colin. I'm your support act. And he couldn't have been nicer. He was, oh, great to meet you. Oh, so glad to have you, blah, blah, blah. We had a brief chat. We got a photograph taken together. Mm. And then I kind of scuttled back to my dressing room. And I was sitting with my head in my hands going, are these sandwiches free? Like the first thing to say to one of your ears. <laughs> to look like a complete idiot but the nice thing was you know i did my did my gig i was only on for like 20 minutes or so and then of course he was the main attraction and it was packed there was about three or four hundred people in this big tent mm. but at the end of his set or towards the end of his set he said you know i want to thank colin for putting on a great show and the whole audience gave a cheer and you know he didn't have to do that and it was it was great it was a lovely kind of moment for me because my parents were there and some of my my best friends were there as well to see me on the big night on the big stage so it was it meant a lot to me that i've got on i've supported other other really lovely people too like holly mcnish and tony longfellow walsh who you might know who's you know he kind of came to prominence after the manchester bomb arena attacks he read the poem in, in mm. manchester square whatever it's called and um, this is the place and he's he's probably the, the most the the professional poet that's helped me the most he's actually given me advice and he's encouraged me and i've actually been to workshops that he's hosted and i can't speak highly enough of him uh, and yeah but it's been great and i've enjoyed that and i've also you know, kind of toured my own show and i've learned a lot from those guys and how they kind of work the stage work the room and it's, but you're always that's what it's all about you always have to be learning did you have a, a people like a, a network of poets when you started out or did you build up a, a network as you went as your career kind of went uh, went on this is an interesting question and i tell you why I have, I'm friendly with a lot of people in the poetry scene, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't say that they're close friends. And I've, I've always seen it as kind of a job. So for me, the, the biggest help to me over the years has been a guy I'm in the band with called Ashley. When I came to Belfast and I started going to poetry nights at the, around the same time, I also joined my first band. And that was just three chance. I went to a New Year's Eve party and I met an English guy who was a singer looking for a guitar player and I was a guitar player looking for a singer. And then we all went on a random night out. We met this other guy who was English and he was a guitar player looking to join a band. And then we just started kind of gathering musicians. But Ashley works in sound production and he had kind of a, a home studio set up. 
as I became more friendly with him, I went around his house and I was recording poems and then putting those up on Facebook and on YouTube and kind of getting the you know, my name out there. And he was advising me on microphone techniques and he would have come to a lot of those early gigs and watched me perform. He, he kind of helped me set up you know, Facebook pages and stuff like that, things I had no real technical knowledge of, which is bizarre because now I work in digital marketing. But at the time <laughs> I was I was totally naive to all that technology and how I could even get my work out there. But for people like him to come and help me and I mean of course I have I have people that I'm friends with in the poetry scene. Yes, if people have helped me and encouraged me and you know their their help over the years has been invaluable and I've learned from the workshops, I've learned from other poets and their mm. performance. Uh, and just to even sit and have a coffee with other writers to hear about their techniques and their processes and what they think of my work, etc. It's been it's been great. And taking in what knowledge you're given or what advice you're given and using it to to the best of your ability. And that's that's an ongoing process. And I'm still I'm still not where I would like to be, but I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think as well, I, I like the way you said. I'm friendly with lots of poets, but I'm not friends with them. And I think that was like my experience with comedy as well, because no one wants to give away the secret. No one wants you to get an advantage over them unless you're in a crew or or, or you're in a clique with it. Like I know m- many guys I have worked alongside, they ended up joining forces and they helped each other along. And if, if you don't join forces with somebody or a group, you kind of get left behind a little bit. You know what I mean? And any creative arts, like, uh, you know, performance or written or uh, spoken word or whatever, it's hard to, to do it on your own without a support network, you know? Oh, definitely. You know, on a, I wouldn't have got anywhere without the help of my friends and mm. not even like poetry friends, but just the encouragement Just going back to those guys from Banbridge, you know, for them to be supporting me and saying you're doing well, that, you know, as I say, meant, meant so much to me going, oh, I must actually be all right at this if they're enjoying it and they're coming to the shows and they're encouraging me. But then on... <laughs> On the other side of the coin, you know, I've had funding from the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. You know, I'm the Duncairn writer in residence. So there are kind of bigger names and bigger organizations that, are, that have been supporting me. And that's been great as well. And that's you know, been encouraging, particularly with the Duncairn. Like, for example, last year when I was working in my proper job, which I got made redundant from, I got made redundant the same month that the Duncairns came to me and said, would you like to be our writer in residence? It's such a great opportunity. And, you know, I was, I was having a conversation with someone a few weeks ago about this. And I was thinking about all the different arts centers in Belfast, not even in Belfast, in Northern Ireland. And I don't know any that actually have a writer in residence. I don't even know that many that have an artist in residence. So for for a place like the Duncairn to employ me and to pay me to be their writer in residence, it's like it's just like, wow, I can't really comprehend that. And I hadn't really, I, I was going, yeah, it's a great opportunity, but I hadn't really sat down and thought about it until a few weeks ago. And I was having this conversation going, that's, I'm in a really privileged position and they've been so great to me to go and let me you know, do this podcast for them, to host the podcast and to really pick the guests that I wanted to speak to and talk yeah. about creativity and to shine a light on kind of up and coming talents. And then at the same time for them to support me in the in the writing and editing of the book that I've got coming out. It's been a dream come true and I can't thank them enough for that. Um, so my residency at the minute is meant to officially end in June, but there's talk of getting that extended. So and of course, like anything, it depends on funding, but hopefully that rolls on for another while after that. And where was the, where does the funding come from exactly? Well, for the Duncairn, they they're one of their main funders would be the Arts Council of Northern Ireland. Okay, because um, they're a, they're a not for profit organisation. They're very much focused on kind of community work, mm. working with community and improving the community, particularly in North Belfast where they're based, which is kind of a socially deprived area. That's, that's where I've been doing like workshops for poetry workshops with different like a women's group and aspiring writers as well, and and also with children. Although it hasn't been in the past year or so, but I've also done workshops with children for the Duncairn. And they've been really proactive in reaching out and engaging with the community and yeah. trying to inspire people through art. If you can get people like that to open up, because I'm sure they've seen some things as in, had seen some hardships, so they can probably, if you can get them to reach deep down inside themselves, they can really come up with some some uh, poetry and, and and kind of like express themselves in, in, in poem, you know? Yeah, you know, I one of the things I always do with the kids in workshops is I always kind of talk about home. It's sort of a loose theme. It's good, always good to have kind of a loose theme for these things. The, the way I approach home is all about the senses. Obviously, poetry is a very sensory art form. So I ask them to talk about their, their what they can smell in their homes, what they can taste, what you know, um, what they can see, etc. The objects and what it may, what they kind of mean to them. And I was I was working, I was doing these workshops in a school in West Belfast called De La Salle, which is a really tough school, really kind of working class school. And I was quite nervous about going into it. How these how these teenagers, these teenage boys, it's an all boys school, mm. how they were going to to take to poetry. And because I was showing them kind of spoken word poetry and they could see this, these elements of rap and comedy and theater and stuff coming through, they were more into it than the, maybe the poetry they had been learning in English class. Yeah, yeah. But they were, they were so excited to write about their own homes and about their own lives. 
and to you know, tell their own story. And there's a guy who I was told, I was told this guy before the class had kind of learning difficulties and he, he probably wouldn't engage with the class. And he, I don't know whether they just kind of threw him in there to kind of get him out of the teacher's hair, but he had the best poem out of all the people in that class. And like, I wish I had written it. It was that good. And he uh. just, I think he just enjoyed the that somebody wanted to hear his story and to listen to him. And, and he just, it, it was, it actually reminded me of Irvin Welsh, his kind of writing. I don't know if you've, if you've read much of his stuff. Like I love his short stories. It's, I mean, I've struggled through train spotting. Well, I've not read it, but I've seen the movies and I, I love train spotting, but I've never read it. I never read the book. I must get, get on it. Uh, the, the book. I mean, I love the film too, but the book is quite difficult because it's all kind of written in the Scottish dialect, you know, like phonetically. And it can be quite hard to follow. <laughs> it's just hard to know. Yeah. You know what I mean, we need like an appendix at the back to look up what this word means. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. School kid, you know, he's only what 13, 14 years old, and he was writing about really awful things that he saw in his street and about his his family and stuff. And it, uh. it was ultimately the book, or the, the the reason they were writing those poems was to get published in a book. It was like a school's project. And I mean, there's no way on earth that that poem could have been published in that book because it was meant to be like a family friendly kind of book. Okay. But I had to, I had to write to the teacher and say, look, it won't get published, but I think it's it's unbelievable and tell him to keep writing and keep at it because he's got a talent there and hopefully yeah. he did now yeah yeah but you always but you always get things to get when you when you work with these school kids they're just they're just happy to to be creative and to share their stories particularly primary school children they're always keen to to write about unicorns and chocolate <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no but yeah no i think i think yeah, secondary school kids are they're not as impressionable because as you said there's there's groups you, you could be in a group and you are you, you if you're not the cool kid you might be kind of alienated if you go up and start performing poetry. Like, I mean, I was doing choir in, in school. When I got to secondary school, I stopped doing it. Cause you know, like it's not, not the done thing, is it? To do choir, like in secondary school, you, people start kind of like picking on you and stuff. So you're just like, no, I'll stop doing that now. <laughs> Definitely. So can you sing then? Uh, karaoke. No, no, I've my voice. No, geez, I'm no, no. I, yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty much the same karaoke. Um, but uh, do you know what? I don't think I've ever actually told anyone this. I don't even think I've told my wife this. But uh, and before I before I formed the band, when I was still living in Banbridge, I had aspirations to be a singer songwriter. I wasn't going to let the fact that I can't sing a note hold me back. Okay. And there was a there was a competition. It was something to do. The competition was some art center in Derry had put a call out for people to write songs about Derry, and I had never been to Derry. But I thought I can write a song about Derry. I'll just make it up. I had a, so I actually had a some lyrics I'd written called "The Flowers of Amsterdam," and I just changed Amsterdam to Derry Town. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And I and I set about recording this uh, this song, "The Flowers of Derry Town," and because I can't sing, I just put on a Bob Dylan impression. Because <laughs> I remember I remember standing in my bedroom in Banbridge and going, "True love has yet to find you." True love, and it was it was awful, and. It, I must have done about 20, 30, 40 takes of it. And I just, I was listening back and going, I sound awful. I sound awful. I said, do it again, do it again. And it must have got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And I sent the song off. And of course it, it got rejected or whatever. But um, I remember after I finished the recording, I came out of my bedroom and my mum had been listening, not listening like outside my door, but she could obviously hear what was going on in the bedroom. And she just said to me, I don't think you're cut out to be a singer. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I'll take that on board. Even when I was growing up, you know, they could see me playing the guitar and you know, writing these lyrics and poems and stuff. And they would always say, you know, you'll, you'll never make a living out of it. Ultimately, they're kind of still right because I'm still not making a living. I still have other projects and freelance stuff, see freelance work that I do to kind of make ends meet. But it's always something that I have enjoyed doing and I will continue to do. And when people like the Dunkern come and support you and you get a bit of work with the Arts Council and you do some work for the BBC and other kind of freelance projects like that, then you kind of go, well, maybe, maybe I can. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Out of this. Yeah. No, definitely. As you, you said, proper, proper job, as they say. I, I, I'm a tour guide, but at the moment I can't really, can't really be it, be that, be the tour guide because um, mm. that's my proper job. I, I have worked on a cruise ship um, for a few years. Um, I've heard of what were you doing there. I was, I had, I was working retail one job and I worked as a an activities host, karaoke, okay. and yeah, yeah, it was fun. But like, as you said, like as you're saying, like slam poetry, it's it's a young man's game. I feel on a cruise ship. When you're in your thirties or getting towards your like mid thirties cruise life, for to be an to be like an activity host, it's quite demanding, and it's six months, eight months away from from home at a time. Mm -hmm. It's not ideal, you know. And people, unless you've done acting and stuff, they don't they don't realize what energy that takes out of you. No, and they just see you every day, sprightly as ever. But mm. you go home to your bed at eleven o'clock at night, and you're exhausted, and you just need you just need you just bed 
and then straight up and then back on it again, nine o'clock next morning. So you're just constantly six months working straight. You don't have any days off, you know? Uh, have you been on a cruise? I have. I went. Yeah. Okay. On, on, actually, I went on, went, on, went on one around um, the Baltic regions. Oh, nice. When I was about seven, 17. So I was in Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, and Estonia. Jeez, look at you. Highfalutin. I like it. Yeah. I, we were supposed to. I was supposed to go on a ship that was supposed to go from this, this season. So you might do one season over in a warm climate, which will be uh, East Caribbean, West Caribbean. And then in the summer, you'd move over to like Baltic region or, or like uh, Western Europe where, cause you, you, you're basically following the sun. Essentially you're following where the warmth is. You're not going to come to come to Europe in, in the winter. Cause it's pointless, you know? No, that's it. They get in like nine months of winter up there. So I yeah. try and avoid Finland as best I can in the winter time. Yeah. You know, fun, funnily enough, talking about that cruise, whenever I first met my wife's parents, they asked me if I'd ever been to Finland. And I said, Oh yeah, yeah. I've been, uh, went on the cruise around the kind of the Baltic regions. I was in Helsinki many years ago when I was you know, 17. And then I said, I, I didn't, I made the mistake of saying, I also went to St. Petersburg in Russia and I loved it. I'd love to go back to Russia. And do you know, like in the old Wild, Wild West films, somebody walks into a saloon and the whole place stops. That's what it was like. The whole room stopped and looked at me. And I was like, what, what, what? My wife said, don't mention Russia. I thought, they, I, I thought they hate Estonia. I think there's some sort of uh, Estonia, Finland hatred there, I thought. Maybe I'm wrong. I know that Finland or yeah, Finland would actually do booze cruises across Estonia because Estonia has got cheaper drink. No, so are they? Do, like, you know, carry out run to Estonia on the boat and come back. Uh, but I know I had, she never actually mentioned Estonia beyond that. I don't think yeah. she's any, any issue with Estonia, but the Russian is <laughs> just different, different story. Yeah, don't mention. Yeah, very good. One of the reasons I got you on is is is, is to because you, you do have a book of poetry coming out uh, called The Age of the Micro- Microwave Dinner, so it's coming out soon, like end of April. Yeah, thirtieth of April is the launch night, so it's just unfortunately it's going to be a virtual launch. I say unfortunately because I'm yeah. the one who enjoy, enjoys the live performances and that, but mm. it's the way of the way of the world at the minute, so it has to be online. So it'll be streamed on Facebook and YouTube, and but even at that, hopefully we get a good audience because I have you know. Obviously, got family now in Finland. I've got friends in America and all across mm. the UK and so on. So hopefully, a lot more people can tune in than would have been able to come to say a, a physical launch in Belfast. Is this your is this your life's work in a book, or is there certain themes you, you've focused on? Uh, interesting, you say that. I've actually got the press release here for the book. Okay. Where do you hear this? Do you, this is the opening line of the press release. The age of the microwave dinner explores where we are as a society, along with universal themes of heartbreak, family, relationships, and death. Now, if that doesn't sell it to people. I don't know what will. <laughs> that, that actually sounds really like it's a really serious. And I guess in parts it is. I always try and kind of bring a bit of light and a bit of hope and a bit of humor mm. to it. Um, so it's called Age of the Microwave Dinner. That was a concept I thought up a long time ago. And the book is in five parts. So it's like the steps, the five steps of a microwave dinner. So we've got Pierce film lid, heat for designated time, peel back film lid, stir well before serving and do not reheat. Those <laughs> are the five steps. But there's a bit of a twist on it. So for example, step one, Pierce film did several times, like a heart you no longer cared for. And then that's all the poems about love and heartbreak, ah, etc. Very good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, there is there is some thought behind it. Um, when when I got the Arts Council funding to kind of start writing this book, I had to put a put the application in with a theme for it. Even if it was just a loose theme, I had to say the theme, the theme that I used was family, family and relationships. Hmm. And I think a book just about that would have been very heavy and it would have been probably boring for me to write and boring for people to read. So it had to expand into those other themes, you know, about death and about social issues and political issues. And, and of course, my own experiences, like even growing up, there's many references to the in the book of Banbridge and about my friends and stories and my relationship with my parents, etc. So there's, there's quite a lot in there. Perhaps it lacks a bit of direction. I don't know. It's not for me to say. The few people that have that have read it so far have been said really kind things. Yeah. I mean, for me, from where I've come from, to not have any kind of formal qualification in English or in creative writing, to just have done it because I love writing and love performing, mm. to then now have this book coming out is, is an achievement in itself. So whether it sells well or wins any awards or even gets nominated for awards, it doesn't really matter to have the book is, is good enough for me. The physical copies will be available from Dura Press, who are the publisher, and and, and from me as well, if people want to get it directly. Bookstores, I actually don't know. Uh, maybe some local bookshops here in Belfast will stock it, okay. possibly. But certainly online will be the way. And as far as I know from other writers that are on, or as, as part of the kind of the Dura Press red roster, kind of on Amazon and some of the other online retail outlets. But um, yeah, buy directly from me or the publisher if people can. That's good. 
No, I look forward to that. It's not like you, don't, you you can't go to college to be a poet. You go you're gonna be a writer and then you kind of branch off and or or you know creative writing and then you, you branch off being a writer or a, uh, you know you can write for theater, you can write poetry, but you don't go to college to be a poet. Poet, I guess, I guess it's kind of the circles you you, you travel in and 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 it, as you said as you said you knew someone who was a poet so that kind of gave that was that was an in in itself you think was it. It was, yeah. And actually, his, his name, I don't think I actually said his name earlier on, but his name's David Smiley. And he's, st- he's still, you know, um, a friend. And I think he's, he's going back to my point about not having friends. He is an actual friend. And I think that's maybe because he comes, the connection is, you know, through one of my closest friends from Banbridge, he's his uncle. But I, but I still, I go and see him. Um, we set out his, ba- you know, the past year or so, we've gone and set out his back garden, and had a, you know, a sandwich, had a coffee, whatever, and kept, you know, socially distanced. And it's been great mm-hmm. to connect with him. And he's actually given feedback on some of the poems in the book, which has been brilliant because it's kind of like come full circle where, he just got this random email from this person he didn't know saying, can I come with you to a poetry night to now, you know, giving feedback on my poems for my debut book. It's been, it's been really wonderful to have him as part of that process. Um, I can't thank him enough for saying yes to letting me come along to that first open mic poetry night and it changed my world, man. So you're also in a band called Dirty Words. So like, are you, what, what kind of music do you play in your band? Well, the reason that I set up the band was to put my poems to music. So, to totally, totally contradict what I said earlier on about not being able to sing. I'm actually the vocalist in the band, but I'm not exactly singing and I'm not exactly talking. It's kind of somewhere between the two. So ultimately it was, as I say, to put my poems to music and because of kind of our influences within the band, it's it's maybe gets away from that at times and there's influences maybe rock and roll and ska and jazz. But it's, it's, it's the reason that I guess initially that I set up the band was Whenever I'm doing live shows, say, say I'm on stage for an hour rather than just an hour of me telling people poems, yeah. have a bit of music just breaks it up a bit, gives them something else to listen to. And for me, because I kind of came from songwriting background, that's what I wanted to do. And I can play a bit of music. It just it's my starting point for creativity. Music. So you write it for music and you perform it in a not a singing sense, but a sort, a sort of a learned, a, a practice singing sense, would you say? Is it, is it more you practice kind of how to say the words but not sing it like a like a lyrical uh, kind of way? Yeah, definitely. Ashley always says to me, you're singing that, stop. You're singing that. <laughs> yeah, Do you know, I, I can play a bit of guitar. I can play a bit of piano and stuff, but she's trying to find notes with my voice. It's just, it's a totally alien concept to me. I just can't do it. And plus you deal with the nerves as well. To think, you know, there's mental mm. blocks. If you can't do it, then you don't, mm. you're not able to do it. Because you've also supported Duke Special. He's a, he's a musician. Yeah, yeah. Really great musician. I've been a fan of his for many years. So mm. to, to meet him was, was fantastic. Um, thankfully, I didn't say anything embarrassing to Duke Special. <laughs> Um, although we actually at the end of the gig um, everyone this is actually he'd finished and kind of everyone had cleared out and we were getting our photograph taken together I kind of put my arm around him and he kind of he sort of jumped like really uncomfortably and going oh maybe I shouldn't have touched him but uh, apart from that no it was great and we we had a chat about music and about our influences and about poetry and we swapped our CDs that we were trying to flog at the time and that was that was another yeah great night and I'm I'm very proud to to know Duke a little bit now I I think We've covered all the bases. I feel. I feel. I feel. We've learned about you as a poet. How you got into it. I know. I. I. I did find out you do like wrestling, but I'm not going to go into that. I don't hear. I don't. <laughs> yeah. From I think we all love wrestling. The slam poetry. I'm telling you, I we all love wrestling. I mean, back in the '90s, wrestling was the was the was for me '90s maybe. Naughties maybe as well. Yeah. When I when I first went to secondary school on my very first day, we had to stand up in front of the class and introduce introduce ourselves and say what we wanted to be when we when we grew up. And yeah. I got up and I said, My name's Colin and I want to be a wrestler. <laughs> I was only I was only I think eleven years old at the time, you first day of secondary school. And yeah, I still get the piss taken out of me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I draw the line at wearing like kind of spandex uh, under underpants. No, I couldn't do that, man. I'd have to wear boxer uh, shorts. <laughs> I'm not adverse to it. I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to wax your whole body, you know, man. It is, you know, it's you got to commit to the, the the cause, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it makes you more aerodynamic. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you were a fan of Brett the Hitman Hart. I was. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that I actually got to meet him. About, yeah, about five or six years ago, he was on like a Q&A tour and he came to just outside Belfast, in a hotel outside Belfast. And I went up, I paid the money to get the VIP experience to meet Brad Hart. Uh, and a huge queue to meet him. And I, I got, I had my wee notepad, my notebook, you know, to get his autograph. And, you know, his catchphrase is the best there is, the best there was and the best there ever will be. What I wanted him to write in my notebook was to call him the best poet there is, was and ever will be. And as I got towards him, I got nervous again, just like John Cooper Clark. And I said, hi, Brad, can you write... 
to Colin, the best poet there 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 is, and and what and was and the best there and I just I kind of stumbled over my words and he and he went it's okay I understand and he wrote you know he wrote what I wanted him to write when they made him um, but then we had a just a brief chat I mean it's only like a thirty second type thing as I was walking off he said nice to meet you Colin and that yeah. just that, even that that one line just blew my mind that man hard to have ball in Belfast yeah. wrestling we have watched on TV at WrestleMania and all those big events and he yeah. said nice to meet nice to meet you Colin and just if that was him I'd want him to do like a, a special move you can put me through this table or can you do something <laughs> like could you break my back you know. Yeah, or like sharpshooter. I remember one time actually when I uh, I one of my neighbours he done a stone cold stunner on me. Oh, I was uh, my knee <laughs> hit my head and I, I was like uh, you know we're not professional athletes you know like they they know how to fall. I did I I was in such pain you know like it's not uh, it's not ideal. On that similar note, I did a tombstone, the Undertaker tombstone. Um, friends on my estate when I was growing up I was probably only about eight or nine years old and did the tombstone and like I could have broken his neck. Jeez, you could have, yeah. Oh, you're coming straight straight down on the top of the yeah, head, straight so, down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even he ran home crying, but thankfully no lasting damage. I could do the socko. <laughs> the socko is great. Just get the socko and go. <laughs> and before you go, Ed, you have a website that I can I, I'll, I'll promote for you or anything you want to promote. Apart from, I'll promote your book as well. I'll put a little link um, on your website. And your website has a link for when the book has been released. Is it? It doesn't. But by the time the podcast okay. comes out, it should do. I've just been lazy about that. But yes, my website is colinhazard.co.uk that's okay. H-A-S-S-A-R-D and also you can find me on your know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram yeah. and YouTube as well with that name indeed there's not too many Colin Hazards about so no that's it find me okay okay so thanks for coming on Um, it's, it was great talk, talking to you and just learned about kind of poetry life and, and, and your your creative world in general like you, you're in a band you, uh, you've got a, a, a book of poems on the way you met your idol in wrestling look I don't know look we've got it all what a life what a life <laughs> alright Colin well, thank you very much for having me on it's been great to chat to you as well yeah no problem and many uh, much success uh, with your residency and also with the podcast as well thank you alright Colin well, thank you for the for the chance to come and chat about how great I am so yeah no problem anytime 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 I'll, I'll talk to you soon and um, alright man I'll talk to you soon right I'll talk to you soon bye-bye. I'll see you soon take it easy And that was Colin Hazard. He's the host of a podcast. He's a poet. He's a lyricist. He's a man of many talents. Now, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment, share with a friend who likes a podcast. I appreciate all the listeners. And if you share with a friend, you can get more people listen to a small podcast like Heartlines. Now, you can find me also on social media at Heartlines Podcast on Instagram, at Heartlines on Twitter. And remember, guys, you're always welcome here in Heartlines. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye.